Hello, welcome to the Collaborative Inquiries podcast. This podcast comes to you as part of the Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology project funded by the John Templeton Foundation and Villanova University. This podcast series will introduce you, the listeners, to the Collaborative Inquiries project fellows and mentors, as well as other established scholars whose research deals with topics such as human nature, virtues and vices, economics, race, disability, memory, human psychology, sin, and grace. We hope that they will be illuminating. My name is Dylan Belton, currently a postdoctoral fellow at Villanova University and participant in the Collaborative Inquiries Project. It is my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion. Our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Christian B. Miller, the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University. He is currently the director of the Honesty Project. In recent years, he was the philosophy director of the Beacon Project, and he was the director of the Character Project, funded by $5.6 million in grants from the John Templeton Foundation and the Templeton World Charity Foundation. He is a prolific scholar who has authored over 100 academic papers, as well as five books, including Moral Psychology with Cambridge University Press in 2021, and four books with Oxford University Press, including Moral Character and Empirical Theory, 2013, Character and Moral Psychology, 2014, The Character Gap, How Good Are We, 2017, and Honesty, The Philosophy and Psychology of a Neglected Virtue, published in 2021. Dr. Miller is also the editor or co-editor of multiple edited volumes focused on ethics, character, and psychology. He is a science contributor for Forbes, and his writings have also appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Dallas Morning News, Slate, The Conversation, Newsweek, Aeon, and Christianity Today. Dr. Miller is also currently working as a mentor for the Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology Project. It is a great pleasure to have him on the podcast today, and we hope that you enjoy the conversation. So Christian Miller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, so my first question, and it's just a standard one, is um, perhaps you can tell us a bit about yourself. I'm, uh, you know, where you're currently teaching. Eventually, I'm interested to find out how exactly you got into the kind of research that you do with philosophy and psychology. So I'm currently the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University, which is a very good school here in North Carolina. I've been here for the last 18 years, uh, coming, coming right from graduate school at Notre Dame and before that undergraduate at Princeton. The story of how I arrived at what I'm doing now uh, is a long one. It uh, starts back in high school, which is where I first got interested in philosophy. I was uh, thinking about questions of God and meaning of life and why are we here? And what is our purpose? And I started reading a whole bunch of stuff on my own, uh, just kind of helping me think through those questions. Philosophers like C.S. Lewis is an example of someone who really got me down a certain path. And then at the end of my time in high school, I had a chance to go to a local college because I had run out of classes to take in high school. So I went to this college and got exposed to philosophy in a more formal setting, an introduction to philosophy class with someone named Dr. Bible, uh, which is really his name. Uh, it's, really, it's a true story. Uh, I took a class with him, an introduction to philosophy, then took another class with him, philosophy of religion, and took another class with him, philosophy of science. And really got got hooked on philosophy. Uh, that was the the kind of key moment I think where my uh, my path in life shifted dramatically. Uh, went off to college, like I said, majored in philosophy, 
went off to graduate school at Notre Dame, wanting to do philosophy of religion and ethics. Uh, ended up definitely uh, focusing more on ethics because there are no jobs in philosophy of religion. So that was, a, that was an important consideration for me. But uh, the first uh, like a stage of my career, and this will take us to, to what I'm doing now, the first stage of my, of my career was not on character and virtue. It was on meta-ethics, which is the foundations of ethics. Where does morality come from? Where is it objective? Is it relative? So that uh, occupied me in my dissertation. Uh, that also kept me busy for my first years at Wake Forest when I was tenure track. But then I, uh, I kind of said what I wanted to say. I didn't really think I had much more to offer to the discussion I was having in, in meta-ethics. I was looking around for something else to work on. And I got really interested in this topic of character and virtue, especially from an interdisciplinary perspective, which we can, I'm sure, probe more in, in a moment. Uh, but uh, that that got me, this is now about 15 years ago or so, got me uh, interested, especially because it was not just a standard armchair philosophy discussion. It had a lot of empirical sides to it, a lot of data sides to it. Um, so... That, uh, that's been basically what I've been working on ever since. We had a, uh, a big project here called the Character Project for five years. We had another project here called the Beacon Project, looking at moral exemplars and heroes and saints. And then currently we're working on a project called the Honesty Project, looking at this virtue of honesty, which is stunningly neglected from the perspectives of philosophy and psychology. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll stop there. That's probably more than you wanted to hear. No, no, no. That was great. Um, I, I, I also went to Notre Dame, so uh, I didn't, I didn't realize you, you graduated from Notre Dame. Who did you study with, out, out of interest? I studied with a number of people, uh, some of whom are not there anymore. My director was Michael DePaul. Uh, he's retired. Philip Quinn has, has passed away. David Solomon is retired as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Ted Warfield, uh, Paul Weithman. I had an, uh, Robert Audi, and then I had an external person helping me from University of Michigan called David Velleman. Um, so it was a great committee at the time, but there's been a lot of change. Since, sure. Since yeah. Then. Yeah. So, well, well, look, it's obviously your shift from metaethics to what you're doing now has been uh, extremely fruitful because you've been extremely busy for the last 10 years, I think, with these various projects. I get, uh, yeah. So look, I'm interested in, well, here's a question. How unusual is the kind of work that you're doing within philosophy and, and ethics? I mean, is did you really just sort of open up a whole new path of, of work within philosophy in this area by looking at the, the science studies, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, is this rare within your field? And um, is this something that, that you, you want to be more widespread within philosophy? Yeah, so let me, um, let me frame the, the work a little bit, and then I'll be to answer the question by saying I was not the first one there. Uh, I was benefiting from some path-setting work, groundbreaking work by others, and then hopefully added on to that. So the work I was doing and continue to do is at the intersection of the philosophy of character and the psychology of character. So looking at not only philosophically what character is, what is a good character, what is a bad character, but also empirically what can studies in social psychology and personality psychology tell us about what our character is actually like, what most people are actually disposed to think, feel, and do in morally relevant situations. So it's highly interdisciplinary, and it needs to be because some of these issues you just can't answer from the armchair. You can't answer the question, how good are people in fact, 
just by thinking really hard. You need some kind of other frame of reference, in this case, empirical data to lean on to make progress in that question. So I was not the first one by any means at all. I, I really was benefiting from some others who kind of paved the way. In psychology, there's a longstanding tradition of working on issues about traits, about personality characteristics, about character, going back to the 1960s and even earlier than that. Uh, but what grabbed my attention was some work by philosophers who were reading that empirical research as well in psychology and drawing implications from it. So this was at the turn of the century. Philosophers like Gilbert Harmon at Princeton and John Doris at the time was at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, they were saying that if you look carefully at the research coming out of psychology, that will give you good reason to think that virtue, moral virtue, is exceedingly rare. And that it's best not to do ethics with a focus on moral virtue. The approach in ethics called virtue ethics, which goes back all the way to Plato and Aristotle, is going to be in some serious danger because it relies so heavily on virtues and yet, at the same time, virtues are rare thanks to this research in psychology. So they got the ball rolling. I came along and said, well, um, I'm not sure about this. I want to find out for myself. I'm going to spend a lot of time going really deeply into the empirical research, reading lots of studies on helping, lots of studies on harming, lots of studies in lying, cheating, stealing, and so forth, and draw my own conclusion, see what I make of it. That ended up leading to a couple of books and a whole bunch of articles. So I think I've what I've done is helped push the discussion forward. I can't say that I was the first one to get it started. I see. Okay, so perhaps maybe we can move now into some of this, this the, the findings that you've um, that you've had and um, and the conclusions you've drawn. But um, let me ask it this way. So. You were referring a bit earlier, I think, to the movement of situationism, if I'm if I'm correct. And so maybe you could just clarify exactly what situationism is. And then I, I, I hear you saying that you see your work as a kind of response to that um, movement within philosophy, which was itself opened up the dialogue with psychological studies. So perhaps you could just clarify that. Great. great. There are two situationist movements, which makes it a little bit complicated. So let's start with psychology. In the 1960s and 70s, there was a situationist movement, most famously associated with the psychologist Walter Mischel, who wrote a book called Personality Assessment, published in 1968. And that movement was not looking at moral character traits specifically, but personality traits in general, wondering whether and to what extent people actually have these traits. These are traits which are supposed to be cross-situationally consistent, so they're supposed to lead to you acting in a variety of different situations a certain way, say, friendly or conscientious or extroverted, as well as stable over time. So if you have these traits to a high degree, you would be, say, conscientious one day and then the next day and the next day and the next month, next year, and so forth. So there's a lot of interest in psychology at the time about whether these traits were real and impactful on behavior. And there was skepticism that was emerging because it seemed like, contrary to what you would expect 
from these traits being widely possessed, people's behavior was very responsive to the situational, to the situations and the situational environments, factors, influences on behavior. So to make that a little bit more tangible, um, as opposed to just talking in a very abstract level, one famous study from the 1960s that has gotten a lot of attention ever since is the Milgram shock experiments. In these experiments, the participant, I assume this is widely known to many of your listeners, the participant would come in, would give a test to someone else in the next room. The test was rigged in such a way that the person in the next room was supposed to be getting a lot of wrong answers. For every wrong answer, the participant in the study would be told to turn up a dial that would administer a greater level of electric shock to the person in the next room. So initially, it was just a little bit of shock, then more wrong answers, more shock, more shock, more shock. Uh, in addition, there was an authority figure standing over the shoulder of the participants, kind of, when needed, encouraging the participants to go further, to continue giving the shocks. And what ended up happening, to make a long story short, is that despite, as time went on, pleas from the shock the victim, you could say, the person who's getting the shocks, um, cries from that person, pounding on the wall, complaints of a heart condition, uh, and eventually silence. Despite all that, the majority of participants would continue to administer the test, continue to turn up the shock, level of shock, all the way to the XXX lethal level. Now, there's a lot to be said about this study, but the implication I want to draw off the connection that we're talking about here, it's the situation, is that uh, personality didn't seem to have a big role to play in predicting whether people would behave a certain way. It was rather the environment they were in and the pressure from the situation that led them to obey this authority figure and continue to administer the shocks. Now, uh, fast forward. So that was a little quick overview about psychology. Uh, this movement in psychology, like I said, was very... Um, influential in the 60s and the 70s. It ended up dying out the, to some extent. I mean, there's still some discussion of it, but it's not nearly uh, uh, as influential as it used to be, and there are many people who, in psychology, no longer subscribe to it. In philosophy, these philosophers I already mentioned, uh, John Doris and Gilbert Harmon, came along and said, well, look, this situationist movement needs to be taken seriously in philosophy. And it leads to a two-step argument. <clears throat> the first step is to say, look, if you take this research seriously like Milgram, then you have good reason to think that moral virtues, specifically, do not exist, or at least are very, very rare. So in the case of Milgram, that's one study amongst many that would help to show that compassion, the virtue of compassion, is rare. And then the second part of their discussion was, okay, Given the, the rarity or maybe non-existence of these traditional virtues, that is going to lead to serious problems for virtue ethics. I already alluded to the, the, one of the leading ethical theories. So now my work uh, figures into all this. Uh, I'll just give you a, a short answer, and if you want to probe it more, we can. Uh, my work figures into all this by saying, I actually agree with Harmon and Doris that this psychological research favors virtue being rare. 
what I do is say that's not a big problem for virtue ethics. And secondly, and the main contribution I made, I think, is to say, well, if virtue is rare, what is our character actually like? It's not virtuous. So we need to tell a story, a positive story, about how we're actually disposed if it's not going to be a story involving virtues. And I came up with a story called Mixed Trait Theory, uh, which I think is still a viable story that, uh, that I've defended in a couple books and, and some other writings. Right. Okay, so that, that's, that's really helpful. So why don't we just continue then yeah, along this track? So I hear you saying that you... Okay, so you agree on the one hand that virtues are rare, and that's not really that controversial of a, of a statement, I guess. If you just think Aristotelian um, virtue theory, Stoics virtue theory, that's not a controversial claim. But you want to defend, I guess, the what the metaphysical existence of character traits as well, or something that there's, these things are real. But on the other hand, you also you also write about this notion of the gap. So maybe we could say, well, first of all, what do you mean by character trait? I mean, in the in the sense relevant for moral theory, and then let's and then we can get into this issue of the gap. Sure, sure, sure. Yep. So, so a lot to unpack here. Let's start with the philosophy side of it and, and a virtue, and virtues in particular, because that's going to be really important for clarifying the gap. So, and then I'll turn to what I think the actual story is about our character, and we'll see there's a gap between our actual character and the character we should have. So, uh, the character we should have, I think, is a virtuous character, which means that it has the moral virtues to a high degree. Um, what are moral virtues? I think they are, at the very least, character traits which dispose us to think, feel, and act well across situations and stably over time. So an example, or several examples would be things like honesty, compassion, justice, kindness, courage, and the like. So they have a thinking component, a cognitive component to them. So the honest person thinks in the right kind of ways. For example, thinks that telling the truth is important, thinks that keeping promises is important, thinks that not cheating is important. It has a motivational component as well. So the honest person is motivated in the right way to act honestly, would not be motivated, for example, by crude self-interest to tell the truth, uh, but would be motivated instead, for example, to tell the truth because it's the right thing to do, or because this person is my friend, or because I care about this person. And then those thinking, that thinking and that feeling gives rise to virtuous behavior. In this case, the honest person would not cheat, would not lie, would not steal. So that's a, a quick overview of some of the features of, of a virtue. A virtuous person has the virtues. I've said already that most people are not virtuous. So there's a gap between how what our actual character, what our actual character is like and how it should be. That's what I call the character gap. Now, let me expand a little bit more on what I think our actual character really is like. As you said, it's not too controversial to say the virtue is rare. Aristotle thought that, uh, for instance, and the psychology seems to back that up. Uh, more interesting, I think, is, well, does that mean, therefore, that most of us are vicious? So the opposite of the virtues is, uh, for each virtue, there's a corresponding vice. So are most of us are cruel, uh, dishonest, cowardly? That's one option. You could say instead that uh, character doesn't exist at all. Character is an illusion. 
most people not virgins because there's just no such thing as character to begin with. That's another option. You can say what Harmon and Doris said, which is that uh, character exists, but it's very, very specific to situations. So there's no such thing as honesty, or it's very, very rare if there is, but there's honesty in test-taking situations. Or there's courage when out on boats. Or there's compassion in shopping malls. These very local, specific mm -hmm. traits. But I don't accept any of those positions. Um, I go with a theory which says, and just very briefly, um, that we're a mixed bag. Um, we're, for the most part, I say most part because I think there's a bell curve. I think there are some admirable, virtuous people. I think there are also some horrendously bad people. Um, but most of us are in a murky middle where character exists. It's real. It's causal. It plays a role in guiding our behavior and our thoughts and feelings. But it's not good enough to count as virtuous. It's also not bad enough to count as vicious. So we are reliably disposed to help others in certain ways and not help others in other ways. Uh, but we don't help reliably enough. We don't help not help reliably enough to count as a corresponding virtue and a corresponding vice. So I can elaborate that a lot more, but I call this the mixed character model. Regardless of whether you accept my view, though, the one key implication is that there's a big gap. There's a big gap between how we actually are and how we should be, and that gap needs to be overcome, I think, because it's really important to be a virtuous person. And so we need to come up with ways to try and shrink that gap in our lives to make our actual character right. better reflect our virtu the virtuous character we should have. Right. And so the philosophy is doing the normative work for you, of course, and then the scientific work is sort of, um, yeah, giving you a perspective on how things actually look on the ground. Okay, well, look, how about this? Um, if you had to tell someone an, an experiment in, the, in, the, in psychology that you think is just hands down sort of shocking or the hands down proof that, you know, we're just not the way we tend to think about ourselves. What, what, what are like one or two of these experiments that you just think are, um, uh, yeah, I mean, really, really strong proof for your position? Yeah, good, good. Uh, I mean, so, you me I guess you mentioned the Milgram experiment, right. early, experiment early, but there's many more. I, I, there's many more. Oh, sure, sure, Some so. of them, anyway, go. I'm yeah. interested to hear which ones are really yeah. have struck you. Yeah, yeah. So um, you even said shocking. Uh, so, of course, Milgram would be the natural one to go with uh, since that's the, shock, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the famous shock experience. And it's nice also that they've been they've been replicated. Um, they've been replicated not just by Milgram, but but worldwide. Um, so they, they've held up pretty well. And they are shocking in the sense of they are very surprising. I mean, people don't expect who've never heard about that. Don't expect that there'll be that much compliance with the authority figure leading to the death of an innocent person. But Set that aside. Uh, I'll give you one. I'll give you one illustration from the literature on helping, but not Milgram. And I'll give you one illustration from the literature on cheating. Now, I should say, framing all this, uh, I don't think anything is proven. Uh, so I don't think in this discussion you can prove anything. Literally speaking, all I do is cite a collection or a variety of different studies to try and make a strong case for my view. But I acknowledge that there are other reasonable interpretations, and I don't claim to, to prove anything. So the other uh, study I'll mention from the helping literature has to do with the group effect or the bystander effect. So surprising to find out, maybe now it's not so surprising because we've heard about it for a while, but certainly when the research came along initially, it was surprising to find out 
that being in a group can significantly impede helping. So in a, a famous study from the 1968, uh, a participant would come into a lab, would be told to fill out a survey, left alone. A few minutes later, the person in charge would come back with another, uh, looked like another participant, who would be told to fill out the survey. The two of you would be working on the survey in the room. Turns out the other person is an actor, but you don't know that. So you're working on a survey. The other person is working on the survey. The person in charge leaves, goes to the next room. After a little bit of time, there's a crash in the next room. The person in charge just starts screaming in pain. Ouch, ouch, ouch. My leg. It's fall, something's falling on my leg. I can't get it off. It looks like a clear emergency. What most people would expect is that uh, there would be a high degree of helping regardless of what the other person in the room does. And that is not true. At least in this one study I'm thinking of, if the other person in the room didn't do anything, then the participant was very likely to not do anything. So only 7% of participants helped when the other person did nothing to help. In contrast... You said 7%? 7%, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's a shocking one for you. Um, mm -hmm. So in contrast, when the participant and other participants now, another, another, uh, another design to the study, uh, when a participant was alone, no stranger, and the emergency happened, 70% helped. So the contrast is 70 versus 7%. When the only difference in the setup was the non-helping of a stranger. That, to me, is not what I would expect of a compassionate person. I would expect a compassionate mm -hmm. person to help regardless of whether others are not doing anything. And this kind of setup has been replicated many times with different variations. So, and it's also been played out in the media. We've seen some really tragic illustrations of this. Uh, the other one I'll give you to shift gears here is to the cheating literature. This is also much more recent. This is not back to the 1960s. This is work that's been done in the last 15 years. And it has to do with a shredder paradigm, which is a common setup in psychology experiments to study cheating. So the way this works is participants will come in, they'll take a test, it'll have 20 problems. They're told they'll be paid 50 cents per correct answer in the control condition which will give us a baseline performance uh, idea of how well people perform in the test. What happens here is that you take the test, you turn in your materials, you don't get to grade any of it, and then it's uh, graded by the person in charge. You're paid according to your performance. In the study I'm going to mention, it was seven correct out of 20. The wrinkle, the experimental condition, is as follows. These are a new set of participants. They come in, they're told the same thing. You're going to take the test, 50 cents per correct answer. The difference, though, is that they get to grade the materials themselves and uh, they get to dispose of all the materials afterwards and just verbally report how they did. So they can say anything they want. There will be no questions asked. There'll be no way to confirm or deny uh, whether that, that's the true answer. And in this study, 14 was the average performance in, in quotation marks, performance uh, out of 20. So what it looks like is that um, there's a significant degree of cheating going on. This is a case where, you know, absent 
these students being these participants being really really smart and and not cheating just doing much better which i don't buy at all mm -hmm. um they took advantage of the opportunity to cheat now that's that's uh the negative side of that story that's not what i would expect of an honest person if these were honest people i would expect their performance to be the same as the baseline but there's one more wrinkle i want to introduce here which gets to the idea of mixed character because so far milgram the group effect uh, and this latest cheating study, they're pretty negative. You might think, how does he get mixed character? I mean, isn't this all just vice? Well, let me expand on this last one a little bit more. So other experimenters picked up on this kind of approach and they added yet another wrinkle to the setup. So they had the control condition. They had the shredder condition. And then they had a third variation, which was the honor code plus shredder. And in this one, these were students and they first had to sign their university's honor code, pledging their honor that they would not cheat on the, on the test. Then they took the test, were given the opportunity to grade it themselves, which they, everyone did. They destroyed their materials, they verbally reported, and lo and behold, the average in this group was the same as the control condition. Mm, I see. It, so there could have been a, some cheating because it's just a group average, so we don't know for sure. But the overall performance dropped back down to the control group. That's mm. not what I would expect of a dishonest person. A dishonest person, I would expect, would go through the formality of signing the honor code, then see an opportunity to cheat and get away with it and cheat and make m money off the uh, cheating. But that's not what happened. So that's an illustration of the idea of mixed character, some good and some bad. Okay, so here's a question. What happens if I had to say, I see what you're saying, I see the studies, these are very interesting. Let's say I don't even question the, the legitimacy of the studies, etc. Let's just say I accept all of this. Um, I guess I still want you to maybe differentiate what you're saying from, let's just say the usual Aristotelian taxonomy in which you're going to have this array, you know, um, on the one hand, let's say the temperate person, then the continent, the incontinent, intemperate. Um, and that taxonomy, I, it seems on the one hand, that taxonomy can capture what you're saying. There's just, mm, we're just sort of somewhere in the middle there floating around, you know, um, and very, very rarely do any of us reach the, the peak or the, or the depths of depravity, you know. Um, so anyway, so how, yeah, how would you, Mm, yeah. Are you saying something? I think you want to say something against that position as well. You want to challenge the Aristotelian taxonomy as well. Okay, good, very good question. Um, uh, yes and no. So for listeners who are not as familiar with that, uh, let me give a little background and then I'll say what I like about it and what I don't like about it. Uh, so the kind of standard Aristotelian taxonomy, which is not as nuanced as Aristotle's own taxonomy, um, he has more categories than just the four, but we'll we'll go with the standard one, which is virtue, continence, incontinence, and vice. Um, so we've already talked about virtue. We've, vice is just going to be the flip side to virtue. Uh, continence is strength of will. So that's someone who's reliably disposed to do the right thing, but in so doing has to overcome some temptation to do the opposite. So they're conflicted internally, and yet they are able to reliably overcome that temptation and still do the same thing that the virtuous person does. 
Whereas incontinence, it's the reverse of that. The person reliably does the wrong thing, so externally behaves the same way the vicious person does. But unlike the vicious person who is not conflicted, the vicious person is wholehearted, the incontinent person is conflicted. So that's why they're similar to the continent person. The incontinent person also has to go through some internal psychological con uh, conflict, but they give in to temptation. The continent person resists the temptation. The incontinent person gives in to the temptation reliably over time. Now, what I want to agree with there is I, I think with Aristotle, most people are not virtuous. Most people are not vicious. Uh, people are in this middle space. So there we're in agreement. I'm just not a fan of the continence and incontinence as the best labels to use for the middle space. Why not? Um, conceptually, they're fine. Philosophically, they're fine. I, I can understand them, and I've got no problem there. What I don't think is very helpful is that they, they, I don't think they map on to how most people actually are. So they don't get much empirical traction. And we can see that by going back to some of the studies we've already mentioned. Uh, so take the honesty study we were just reviewing. Uh, in the honesty study, well, when people had an opportunity to cheat in the shredder condition, they systematically cheated. So that's an illustration not of continence, but that would, I guess, would have to be incontinence. But then we had the honor code version of that. And in that honor code case, most people didn't cheat. So that would be either virtue or continence. So what ends up happening is that um, what you, you don't see a reliable pattern of good behavior, which you would need to for continence, but you also don't see a reliable, consistent pattern of bad behavior, which you would need for, for mm -hmm. incontinence. What you see mm -hmm. is a mixed pattern. Sometimes people act well, sometimes people act poorly, and often that will be influenced by situational environment factors, or um, different variables, which will not make it easy to classify them with a simple label like continence or incontinence. It's more complicated and messy. Right, I see. And so this is why I know in your written work, you often say that we don't have any terminology that maps onto what you're calling these, these, mix, these mixed character traits. We don't have words for them yet. Correct. And that's, right. that's a shame. It make, I mean, it makes my job a lot harder. Uh, because it would be nice if we did, and I could just say, okay, we're not virtuous, we're not vicious, we are this, and I could use some term mm -hmm. that everyone everyone connects with. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I, I got it right away. You don't have to explain it much. Unfortunately, um, it doesn't work that way, I think, and so I had to come up with this terminology, which is not the most you know, like user-friendly, uh, mixed character, mixed helping trait, mixed uh, cheating trait, and so forth, to label a phenomena that we may not have recognized very well or we're only now getting a better handle on right right so it seems to me like there's a there's a depressing component to your work but i guess that's also just coming from uh the science the scientific studies themselves but then there's there's also an optimistic moment if i if i understand your work correctly you're not for instance with the milgram experiment stuff you don't draw the conclusion that we're all just sort of deep down mm, cruel uh, you know, cruel individuals who are just waiting to act cruelly whenever we have the chance. You don't make these conclusions. You actually think it's, um, uh, yeah. You so maybe like your mixed character traits, just sort of in the middle between optimism and and, and pessimism. So, 
I mean, yeah, so maybe you could say something about that. And also, yeah, what what conclusions do you draw about how we're supposed to go forward or what we're supposed to do with this research for thinking about the moral, the, our own moral lives or, mm, yeah. yeah, let's see what you have on that. Yeah, 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 good. Um, so let's, let's take it in two steps. Um, you're right that I don't go the hyper-pessimistic route. I don't say most of us are vicious or cruel, specifically have vices like cruelty or dishonesty. And so that in that way, it's an optimistic view. I often, we often so, ten, uh, we tend to often gravitate towards the negative and spend much of our time discussing studies like Milgram and group effect that we forget that there's another whole side to the story. So in the honesty study, the fact that the honor code had that impact is quite, quite impressive and quite admirable. Here's another line of research that hasn't been mentioned yet, I think is also quite impressive. Uh, research on empathy and helping. So the work of Dan Batson in psychology, I think has been very convincing in illustrating that when we empathize with the suffering of others, most of us are much more likely to help them, help other people with their suffering. That, that right away is impressive. But even more than that, help other people for selfless, altruistic reasons. So not so that we can benefit and get some reward from helping them, but to help them for their own sake, to try and alleviate their suffering and their adversity. And there's lots to be said about why he thinks that and how he came to that conclusion, but it's well backed up by 30 years of empirical research in his lab and other labs. So if that's right, um, then we have a powerful capacity to be altruistic in thinking about and responding to the suffering of others. So that's another illustration of the glass half full side to the story, not the glass mm -hmm. half empty. Um, now, the uh, transitioning to the idea of what can we do about it all, um, I'll make two general remarks and then we can dive into the details if you like. Uh, one general remark is that Fortunately, our character isn't fixed. Uh, if our character was kind of stuck in the mud, we, we, we have this character, we're born with it, or we're raised with it, and then we can do nothing about it. That's just what we have. That would be a kind of pessimistic idea right there. Uh, but it's not the case. Uh, I think, and this is not me pronouncing from the armchair, there's plenty of empirical research from psychology that character can change over time, which also confirms our own lived experience of people changing over time. So that's, that's good that we could do something about this murky middle situation. And then the second thing is that there is some preliminary work on concrete strategies we can adopt. So it's not like we can, we're just you know, left with nothing to work with. Okay, character can change, we should change it, but I have no clue where to go. There are some strategies that are emerging to make tangible, practical progress over time, it's not gonna be easy. It's not gonna be quick. Character change is slow and messy, but um, there are certain things we can do to get better mm -hmm. and thereby shrink the character gap. Right. Um, yeah, I guess I'm, well, let, let me ask this. I know one of these, these um, means by which to shrink the gap is, um, is the use of moral exemplars. And I, I know with the, the the beacon, I think it's the beacon project. You've been you you're working on like moral 
heroes of sorts, you know? So I'm trying to, I want to combine these two questions, but I'm not sure how to do it. So, um, well, what, yeah, what, what, what has come out of that Beacon project with studying just like morally excellent people? Um, was, you know, were these people disposed this way or were these people who just from birth, so to speak, or were these people who, I don't know, went through radical transformations and then became uh, moral heroes, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, if that, if that question is, is viable, have a go at it. If not, you can, we can do another one. Yeah, no, no, I, I can say a few things. Um, so first of all, this is a project that only wrapped up fairly recently. And so lots of the research is still in progress and, and is, is coming out. I encourage listeners who are interested to visit our website, uh, just search in Google for Moral Beacons and Wake Forest. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a complicated story, and I, I'm not, uh, you know, maybe the best one on the empirical side to tell us, but a couple of things that emerge. One is, uh, there does seem to be a genetic component to character. So it's not like we start life with a blank slate and then are just able to be shaped by society and upbringing and so forth. However, uh, however that happens, there looks like there's a genetic component. But it's not just completely genetic. There's also an upbringing component. There's also a volitional component um, to, to how we act. And then how do people become this way? There's no one story that fits the, the script either. Um, so some people look like they were um, from very early on, on this kind of path of being better than, than most. For others, it was a choice that they made or at least impacted by a choice they made at a certain point in their life that set their life on a different trajectory, um, whether it was a great deal, a certain hardship that they had. Um, some cases it was a religious experience they had. Um, some cases it was just a, a personal crisis that they were dealing with um, that, that, that changed their life for the better. Um, in our research, there are lots of issues that come up here. One is how do you even define exemplars? Um, mm -hmm. And how, another is how you pick them out experimentally. And then a, another area of research, which I'm most familiar with here as a philosopher, is how can we benefit from them? How can we, we learn from them? Right. Um, and that has become a, a, quite a hot topic in the character literature in recent years. Um, the philosopher who's done the most here is someone named Linda Zagzebski at University of Oklahoma, who wrote an entire book using exemplars as the entire basis for thinking about ethics completely, including how can we change our own lives and benefit from them. Uh, but focusing on that last bit in particular, uh, the idea is that uh, these moral exemplars, they hold up an image to us, uh, people who do not have mixed character, at least in certain parts of their life, maybe they're, they're not flawless across the board, but in certain parts of their life, they've succeeded in passing the threshold and getting to virtue. We can learn about their lives, uh, thereby enabling us to admire what they've done and also admire who they are, which enabled them to do what they did. That admiration, that emotion of admiration can in turn lead us to be inspired by them. This is what the, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt calls elevation. We can be elevated in our own lives to want to emulate what they did in our personal lives. So that we become more like them rather than them becoming more like us. Uh, so this is uh, an idea that I think has some 
some real merit to it as a strategy for bridging the character gap. Um, there are uh, different factors that come into play, whether the exemplar is a historically distant one or contemporary one, whether this is someone I can relate to or not, whether it's a, it's a, a real person or a fictional exemplar, um, whether it's someone who I see in a, on a regular basis in my life or it's just more of a one-off exposure to the person. Um, but there's, a, I think, promise here as a strategy mm. for character improvement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just maybe to switch a bit into my own discipline, theology, I mean, you could see basically all of Christian practice um, as, a, as a means by which to try get believers to emulate someone who lived 2000 years ago. <laughs> but um, so there is, you know, there's a lot to draw there about how to go, you know, go about this process of, of emulating someone's life who, like your Christians believe Jesus is present, of course, still. Um, um, but, you know, concretely was only present 2000 years ago. We have all these means to try evoke um, and elevate, as you said, that term and then evoke action as well. So, I don't know. I'm. 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 You know, I know you've done some work with religion, or you've thought about this at least. So I don't know if you want to say something about that. I do. Um, so I think that definitely, if we switch into a, a specifically Christian context, that brings some new resources to bear as well. Uh, I think you're right to, of course, to say that Jesus becomes the main exemplar that followers are supposed to emulate in their lives. He's not the only one, though. So, of course, mm -hmm. there's a long tradition of thinking that the saints are worthy of admiration and, and emulation. Uh, there are, you know, the tradition of thinking that certain people in your community, in your church, in your local space um, are also can also be role models of virtue. Uh, I want to maybe add two more points to what you said. Uh, one is that I think there are other Christian practices that may not have as much of a focus on emulating Jesus, but also can contribute a great deal to character improvement. And then I will, the, the other element I'll add, and also I'll expand on both of these, is that uh, it's not just one directional. It's not just me, the human being, being left up to my own devices to improve my character. There's going to be a divine component to that, to how this works out within a Christian framework. So... Mm -hmm. On the, on the first point about the Christian practices, uh, I think a lot of Christian practices will be character building if carried out well, uh, even though that may not be their main focus. So I'm thinking of things like prayer. Uh, Christians pray to God. They pray to the Father. They pray to the Son. They pray to the Holy Spirit. Uh, they pray for all kinds of different things. Some of which can be to become a better person, of course. You can like help me with this temptation in my life, help me become more honest. But often it's not for that. It's for praying for other people, uh, praying for world events, uh, giving uh, gratitude, uh, expressing gratitude through prayer. But in the context of that practice, a byproduct can be improving your character. So it may not be the goal mm -hmm. of the particular prayer to improve character. But in praying, I can be exhibiting humility. I can be expressing gratitude. I can be demonstrating love. Um, and so as a byproduct of the practice, I can grow in those virtues. Same thing with something like fasting. Uh, same thing with something like uh, uh, charity work. Uh, same thing with 
alms, I mean, like giving, uh, donating, tithing, and so forth. Uh, so I want to emphasize, emphasize the diversity of practices within Christianity, which also is going to be true in many other world religions. And note that while they may not have exemplars as the focus, and they may not even have character as the main focus, they often have character building as a mm. byproduct. Uh, the other thing that I highlighted earlier was how, interestingly, from a Christian perspective, and this is not going to be true of some world religions, it's certainly not going to be true of a non-religious approach, uh, character building is not just a matter of me working hard to improve myself, or even me in my community working together to improve ourselves. There's this idea from a Christian perspective of God working internally in the life of the believer. And they would, you know, that's often put in terms, in theological terms of the internal workings of the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification. So uh, the Holy Spirit working within the believer to bring about character change to some extent in this life, although not completed in this life, because no one upon death has a f fully virtuous character, but at least is moving in that direction, thanks to both the work of the human, but also the internal work of the divine. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a partnership, as way I would put it, um, which means that we're not left to our own devices. There's, mm -hmm. there's kind of comfort to be found in knowing that there's help from the divine in this process. Right. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, have, I guess I have two two responses to this because and I did a bit of work with uh, Thomas Aquinas in, in my dissertation and I mean here you get um, once you move beyond the discussion of the of just the normal issues surrounding the virtues and habitus and this kind of thing you know you find that someone like Aquinas is most interested in things like the gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit and all the discussion of the acquisition of the virtues is so that it's basically to get you to see how, or prepare you, so to speak, for the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and then you live a life totally attuned to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your in your life. You know, whether that's at the cognitional level or affective level, behavior level. So it's really, yeah, it's. I think once you move on to that stuff, he he get he sounds very strange to a philosopher. You know, this is very strange, um, and. Uh, yeah, I have no idea how you would test that, I guess. And, and this, is, uh, the, this is the second uh, thing I was going to say is, so on the one hand, the mixed trait model and the research you refer to could be something that a Christian could say, well, okay, I would totally expect that given original sin and, and uh, this kind of thing. But I can also imagine that it would unnerve us if we did an experiment and we found that, like, you know, all these devout Christians who have all, you know, pray all these and 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 go to church and ever behave just like everyone else when they're um, uh, in these experiments, you know, that would be unnerving. I think that would be a kind of study for, that would unnerve me as a Christian, you know. But I have no idea if something like that's been done. But it would it would trouble me, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So a lot to be said here. On, on the first point about Aquinas, I'm going to defer to you. I'm not an Aquinas expert. I, I, I'm not really a historian in general. Uh, there are interesting issues here that get complex, though, about acquired virtue versus infused virtue. So if we introduce a perspective whereby there are actually different types of virtue, and some types of virtue can only be bestowed upon a person by God, that will add a whole bunch of 
additional complexity to this discussion and also raise the questions about free will and moral responsibility uh, and whether there there's determinism going on here. So uh, I'm not going to not going to touch that. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah, another yeah. another time. Um, but the, on the on the second point, uh, so there is something to be said here indirectly, maybe. Um, so you're right. For, well, let me take it in two parts here. Um, first, let me comment about the mixed traits, and then let me comment about behavior of Christians. Uh, on the mixed traits, I'm I'm. I hope lots of Christians would accept my picture as compatible with a broadly Christian framework. Uh, it's not obvious that all will, though, because some will have a more pessimistic reading of original sin, and I'll think mm -hmm. you know maybe some versions of Calvinism—not not all by any means, but at least some more pessimistic versions of Calvinism—will think that the proper view to hold here is a vice approach, where we should expect most people to be vicious. And I'm not holding that view, and so there may be some pushback in that, from that direction. Um, but I think uh, there's there's a reason to go with my mixed traits, uh, both empirically, and I don't also don't think that theologically you are forced into thinking that most people are vicious on the grounds of original sin or or anything like that. Uh, now on the behavioral side, I agree with you. Um, that it would be quite disappointing if, in general, Christians behave no better, and certainly if they behave significantly worse than non-Christians, <laughs> um, that would be quite disappointing. Uh, it's hard to know how to test this, um, in part because maybe you'd have to get a big, big sample of Christians and a big, big sample of some other group and do lots of tests for both groups and see what the data shows. If you just had a small collection of people, it's not so clear what that would really tell us because people are starting off in different places in their lives. So a, Christian, a particular Christian could make lots of progress from going, starting in a very difficult place in their life and coming to just a mixed character, for example. Mm. Um, that would make, that would still be a significant progress, although it wouldn't look like it maybe uh, as far as virtue is concerned. They still have a long way to go to get to virtue. But, um, but here's something. So there are these studies in sociology, behavioral economics, and psychology, mostly or almost entirely correlational studies between measures of religiosity and different moral measures. So, and I'll tell you what the a couple of findings are in a moment, but I'm flagging from the start, these are correlational studies, so we don't know the causation that well. Uh, and... Uh, and they are studies of behavior, so we don't know about character. Behavior is only one component of character. Having put that aside, what these studies show over and over again, not uniformly, there are some that don't show this, but the majority of these studies find a correlation between religiosity and good moral outcomes. So as religiosity goes up, you find... For example, greater donation to charity, um, both religious charities and non-religious charities, greater volunteering, number of hours volunteered, for instance, uh, reduced criminal behavior. Um, so uh, across 18 or more different measures of criminal behavior. Uh, so you know, we start kind of adding, adding, adding on to this, better performance in school, 
uh, fewer classes skipped, lower drug use, etc. Um, then we start seeing an initial pattern that makes me feel better, but mm -hmm. with a lots of caveats and caution noted as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very helpful. So look, we're we're running out of time, so I I um I want to have one more question for you, if that's if that's okay. And I I'm just interested at the kind of teaching you do um, at the undergrad level, because um I and I guess I'm particularly interested in how students respond to this kind of empirical work in philosophy, because I mean sometimes my my sense is that sometimes with undergrads, philosophy and then theology can be a sort of like, you know, okay, we're just kind of fooling around a bit, you know, it's like the, um, so I wonder if, you know, when you bring in this kind of empirical work, um, uh, in your classes or whatnot, how do the students react to this sort of, um, work? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't do that in many classes, like an introduction of philosophy. I don't bring it. I try to not have it be about my work, um, or, or the data too much. Um, same thing with my ethical theory class, but I did introduce a new class, which speaks to this. It's called, uh, topics and ethics, virtue and character. And what we did in this class is we start by first clarifying conceptually what virtue and character are. Then we move on to look at the empirical literature, tells us what, how good are we, what does our character actually look like. Uh, students find that very interesting. I've had no pushback at all from that, but I don't make it the whole semester. I think if we just did that, especially in a philosophy class, that would, that would be strange, and, and, and I don't know how well that would go. But it's a, it's a, it's a chunk of the class. Uh, from there, we go on to individual virtues, and we dive deeply into what is honesty, what is compassion, what is justice. And then at the end of the semester, we tie it all together by looking at character improvements. So given these are the facts, just kind of like our discussion today, these are the facts, as we, best as we know empirically, and this is what we should be like. And here, we looked at the particular virtues in detail. How can we improve ourselves? And then the very last thing we do for the, for at least they do for their final paper, is they have to talk about something in their own character, some area where they're not pleased with their character. They have to tell me what virtue pertains to that area of their life. They have to give me an account of that virtue. Tell me uh, what a critic might say in opposition to their account of the virtue. Respond to the critic, and then talk about how they could or, and will plan to make progress in improving themselves in that area of their life. I see, so, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So it's very practical, very applicable, not just theoretical, and uh, I think it's a really cool assignment. Great. Well, look, um, I think we're out of time, so you know, thanks so much for your time, and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great conversation. That's all for this episode. For more information about our project, Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology, visit our website at theologyandscience.org. Thanks for listening.